hello, and welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We're your hosts, Vincent Hannum and Matt Levine, and we're talking about all our favorite monster movies, the good, the bad, and the downright campy, and asking if they stand the test of time. Traditional kaiju, creature features, space invaders, the supernatural, and everything in between. All strange beasts welcome here. Camp Kaiju is sponsored by Zach Linder and the Zach Pack, powered by Coldwell Banker Realty, your source for real estate home rehab, fixing and flipping for investor clients and residential buyers. Reach out to the Zach Pack today for real estate services. Follow the Zach Pack on social media and contact the Zach Pack for investment opportunities. Links in the bio. Hey, Matt. Welcome. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm good. That was seamless. I loved it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm good. Happy to be back on the pod. How are you? Good, good. Um, happy to talk about yet another King Kong so soon after our last one. Just felt yeah. like we had to we had to make up for lost Kong representation on this podcast. <laughs> That's yeah, like our number one sort of like, you know, visibility and representation concern is King Kong, as it should be. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a that's a bad joke. Um yeah, we so we talked about like the three straight up versions of King Kong, or we have talked about well, we talked about two of them and and now the nineteen seventy-six version. Is there a reason it was the last one we got to? I feel like it's you know, um, often forgotten by fans of King Kong. Like I, like the original is a classic, of course. The Peter Jackson remake from 2005 is, of course, more recent. And like it's it's long, it's epic, it looks great, it has great special effects. So I feel like the 1976 version is like caught in the middle a little bit, you know? Totally agree. And like it's such a product of its time. We'll get into that. Um, and that, not that's a bad thing. I love films from the 1970s um i feel like there's a grit to it there's an aesthetic um a sort of a sweeping nature to it or a melodrama to it but um for better or for worse that could also date the film a bit more than other aesthetics yeah yeah for sure i'm like you you kind of get the sense that this version of king kong is kind of like pulled in a lot of different directions like should it kind of be like a purist homage to the original or should it like you know be like kind of like a radical re-envisioning i feel like it never knows exactly what it wants to do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well before we get into that i just want to thank you all for listening to camp kaiju weekend week out week in week out and thanks for our patrons for your support can't thank you enough jason kelly peggy and our anonymous donor Thank you. You, everybody out there listening, please rate and review Camp Kaiju wherever you listen. You can also share this podcast with a friend who doesn't love monster movies. You can also send us listener comments at campkaiju at gmail.com, on Instagram at camp underscore kaiju, or our YouTube page, which is Mischief Tales. Um, I'll put the links to that in the bio as well. You can also check out our website, campkaijumoviereviews.com. Um, spooky season is um, next week. Um, so we have some really fun, really campy movies lined up. Um, Matt, do you want to go into that a little bit? What we can expect in October on Camp yeah, Kaiju? Absolutely, yeah. So 
first off, I think first off, but in in no particular order, I'll just say, <laughs> um, Plan Nine from Outer Space, uh, the Ed Wood masterpiece, one of a kind. I can't wait to talk about that one. <laughs> Um, shortly after that, we have a similarly kind of so bad it's good classic Troll 2, um, which has to be seen to be believed. Can't wait to talk about that one. Yeah. And then the last one for October that we're going to talk about is the Toxic Avenger to finish our spooky season, guilty pleasure, um, extravaganza. And Day of the Triffids. Oh, how could I forget? Day of the Triffids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I've wanted to see for a long time. Killer plants. You can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. The off overlooked killer plant genre. Um, they have triffids, a uh, little shop of horrors and one that has been requested more than once from listeners attack of the killer tomatoes from hmm. the late seventies. It looks, oh. it looks delicious. I can't wait to see it one day. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see that. There's also The Happening by M. Night Shyamalan, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think actually you can certainly go wrong when you make a movie about killer plants. I think it's that's <laughs> often how it goes. And that's that's a good case in point. But, uh-huh. you know, that's maybe that's uh, one of the charming things about the subgenre. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's get into let's explore that subgenre, shall we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there must be like a particular term for it, although I can't think of it right now. Plant exploitation, maybe. <laughs> well, that's what we're calling it from now on. We have to. Um, throwing this out there to all of our listeners to put on your radar um, is the Twin Cities Horror Festival. It is a theater festival running from October 19th through the 29th, featuring a play that I wrote about a killer hand, hand exploitation, if you will. <laughs> um, it is called The Hand That Washed Ashore. And on Friday, October 20th, is our opening night. We'd love to see you there. Um, we'll call it a opening night Camp Kaiju bash. Like, just come out, represent, say hi. We'd love to see you and enjoy some monster theater. I can't wait to see it. I've uh, seen one play that you were in, although I don't think you wrote it, but I read another one of your scripts that you wrote. Mm. And yeah, I'm a big fan of your work, so I can't wait to see this play. Thanks, man. And got to shout out your own work. Matt has a novel. It's called Hollow. It's been out for a while, but it is it is perfect for spooky season. It's about witches and ghosts and demons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wisconsin slash Midwestern horror is my vibe. Yeah, I love it. I love that too. Thank you for shouting out the book. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's 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 good. It's really dark, but uh, I love it. Yeah, I some other people have mentioned that to me. Like, yeah, I mean, like I didn't like people that know me in person. It's like I didn't think it was going to be so dark, which I kind of take as a compliment. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait until you see my killer hand play. You'll you'll never think of me the same way again. Awesome, man. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right. King Kong 1976. Um, Matt, what's your personal history with this film? I actually saw it for the first time relatively recently, a couple months ago, maybe like late July, I think. Um, You know, I had never seen it before then. I was always curious about it. Of course, I love the original King Kong. Um, And then I watched most of it again before recording this episode um yeah it's a it's a it's a weird movie and i think 
you know, fans of the original King Kong or just monster movies in general, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's worth, um, you know, it's just so unique. It's kind of a product of its time, as we briefly alluded to. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird little oddity for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, my personal history of this film is similar to yours. I didn't see it until a couple of years ago when I got into um, watching watching kaiju movies I hadn't seen before seeing the remakes of of classics or uh sequels you know there's a sequel to this movie this version of king kong uh, yeah i did know that from like the early 80s right yeah same director and i have it on dvd i got it from uh video universe rest in peace yeah um i can't wait to watch this because i know it is critically a uh, pretty um ill regarded <laughs> those can be my favorite movies sometimes i know yeah so i as long as it's not boring right as long as a movie yeah. it can be terrible but still just don't be boring that then i'm them then i'm on board the, yeah boredom is the cardinal sin of movies i totally agree <laughs> yeah. does king kong lives have any of the same cast as this movie jessica lang or jeff bridges or anybody no not okay. that i know of not the stars uh linda hamilton is in it oh cool and Brian Kerwin. Hmm. I don't know him. I don't know any of the other names, um, but Linda Hamilton. Well, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. Yeah. All right. Movie night. So the plot synopsis of this King Kong, we're not going to go into it because it is the King Kong traditional story. Now, there are some notable differences. The film is set in the mid 1970s. And rather than you you know you know you have Carl Denham in the 33 version he's a a maverick filmmaker in this 76 version you have um a man who's leading a he's leading an expedition to find oil reserves for an oil conglomerate called Petrox so he serves as the Denham character i think those are the mo- main differences you think yeah i think so i would say maybe uh... You know, there aren't any dinosaurs on the island in this movie. And I think like more story time is devoted to the relationship between Kong and Dwan as the character is named in this movie. It's kind of like the version of the Andero character from the original film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have the World Trade Center in- instead of the Empire State Building at the end. But yeah, aside from that, it's pretty much, you know, the same story. Yeah. Speaking of the cast... Um, playing Dwan is Jessica Lang. This was her first film. She was an unknown at the time. Playing opposite her is Jeff Bridges as Jack Prescott, who is um, substituting for the Jack Driscoll character in this case. Um, Jeff Bridges at this time, young leading man, um, Hollywood star. He had been in movies like um, in the early 70s, like The Last Picture Show. Uh, what other what other movies was he in in the 70s? Oh, uh, he was in Fat City, which is a John Huston movie, a boxing film that's supposed to be good. I've never seen that. Um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Uh, Clint Eastwood was in that movie as well. That's another one that's supposed to be very good, although I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, I mean, I think this was relatively early in his career. You know, I think he started in the early 50s as a kid and he was in like TV shows and like little bit roles up until the 70s but his career didn't really take off until then i think 
Right, right. He had a a bit part in High Noon as a kid. I did not know that. His dad, Lloyd Bridges, is in that movie. Oh, of course, yeah. He's like yeah. some stable kid who like says something cheeky to Lloyd Bridges or something. <laughs> cool. I had no idea he was in that. Yeah. I did read that he was in an episode of Lassie, so that that's, uh, you know, a claim to fame, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely a name at this time. A couple other shout outs. I just wanted to mention that playing the captain, Fred, sorry, not the captain, the head of the oil, uh, the representative of the oil company. um, The character's name is Fred Wilson, played by Charles Grodin. And then uh, Captain Ross is played by John Randolph. Charles Grodin is, well, maybe I should save this for later. He's... uh... Maybe my favorite part of this movie. I'll just say that for now. He chews the scenery, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the film was directed by John Guillermin. Uh, he had done The Towering Inferno, I think, shortly before this movie. Um, French-British director. Don't really know a lot about him. I think he was kind of like a temperamental figure on set. He got mm. into a lot of arguments and shouting matches and stuff like that. Um Usually that kind of behavior is reserved for like great artists. I don't know if you can call him a great artist, but maybe that's debatable. I don't know, man. The Towering Inferno, that Academy Award winning film. I don't know if it holds up, but uh, but, you know, it's a memorable movie. Yeah, it is for sure. I think that's one of many movies that the Oscars got wrong. But, (laughs) you know, that's that's my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> uh <laughs> not to be you know I, I feel like i'm really hating on john gearman right now i'm not i you know i don't feel strongly about him i guess but Ooh, john gearman <laughs> yeah i'm the president of the anti john gearman anti fan club <laughs> um the screenplay was written by lorenzo semple jr who i don't really know very well i'm looking oh the parallax view three days of the condor Two very good, like, paranoid political thrillers from the 70s. Mm. Um, so yeah, he's uh, he's a good writer. He direct, or he wrote some episodes of Batman, the original TV series. Um, so, yeah, some good credits on his resume. Nice. The film is produced by the one and only Dino De Laurentiis, the, the famed Italian producer. We talked about him with Orca the Killer Whale. Um, he had come, he had been producing films in Italy for a number of decades, right? For a while. Yeah, I think he started in the 50s and he worked with some really great directors like Fellini. Um, some other good ones too. Nobody's really coming to mind right now. But yeah, he he had a long career. Yeah. Then he comes to, to Hollywood in 1975. King Kong is his, I think it's his first American picture. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And... Of course, he goes for the biggest American movie title he can think of. And he directs, he produces this film. He produces the sequel, King Kong Lives. He also produced Piranha 2 The Spawning. So for as much, uh, for as many great titles as there are on his resume, there are some questionable titles as well. But I think that's part of his charm. Mm -hmm. I... Love this dude. I'm part of the John, the Dino De Laurentiis fan club. Yeah, like I feel like you can tell that he just loves movies. And like any project is like, yes, this is going to be the greatest movie ever made. And yeah, like you said, that leads to a lot of bad movies, but also some really great ones. And it's hard not to like somebody like that. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, the music by John Barry, who scored a lot of James Bond films. I think you can tell from listening to the soundtrack of this movie, there was some like brass and horns. And I was like, whoa, am I watching a Bond movie all of a sudden? <laughs> a very distinct sound, but I love it. Yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a treat um, to have his score. I think it does a good job at setting the the tone for that kind of melodrama of the of the film. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, prestige action and adventure movies like he his his music always carries that sound to it, you know. Mm hmm. Uh, and then the cinematography is by Richard Klein. Uh, I think this movie looks very, very good. I think the cinematography alone kind of uh, kicks it up like a star rating, in my opinion. He'd been working for a little while, actually, maybe like a decade or so. He started in the mid 60s. Um, he shot the movie Camelot, uh, Hang Em High, the Clint Eastwood movie, uh, The Andromeda Strain. He had shot like a number of like sci-fi and action movies. So he was definitely like a big sort of mainstream hollywood cinematographer the production backstory and release of this film is not complicated per se but they're the 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 whole tangled web of rights with king kong properties is mind-boggling i had to reference several different websites to like try to get it straight mm -hmm. um, but in terms of king kong 1976 dino de Laurentiis went to RKO in the 1970s and RKO wasn't even like a functioning movie studio at that time, but they had the rights to the film or the title or the property and they sold it to Dino De Laurentiis, but apparently NBC and producer Sid Sheinberg and Michael Eisner of Disney fame mm -hmm. claimed that RKO had sold them the rights uh, so it went to the courts and Dino De Laurentiis ended up and Paramount ended up getting the rights to this film with the condition that NBC Universal could make their own King Kong, but had to wait at least 18 months. Well, Peter Jackson's King Kong is that universal King Kong much, much longer than 18 months, but they eventually made their own too. So yeah, just like a lot of legalese around all that um, production and kind of like a lot of competing um, claims as to who came up with the idea, right? Like De Laurentiis is like, Oh, I got the idea because my daughter loves this movie. And then Michael Eisner was like, no, when I was an ABC executive, like I'm the one that came up with the idea to make it. So yeah, I mean like every, who knows like who actually had the originating idea to remake this movie. But like, I'm sure they both had an idea to make King Kong. It's not, you know, it's just like, Let's remake one of the most well-known American movies of all time. It's not a super original idea. Right. The odds of two producers coming up with that are not, um, it's not far-fetched to think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then probably like in the wake of this movie, well, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I'm guessing Universal didn't really want to make another version of this movie in the immediate aftermath of it. Hence the, you know, delay. <laughs> yeah, the 30-year the delay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in regards to the contemporary setting of King Kong, De Laurentiis and Lorenzo Semple wanted intentionally wanted to move it away from um, Marion C. Cooper's 1933 in tone, in aesthetic. They wanted to set it in the 1970s. They wanted to incorporate the World Trade Center. They wanted, which was new at the time. It had only opened, I think, in 72. 
um, and was at the time the tallest, the two tallest buildings in the world. So I don't blame him for for doing that, because at the time of the 33 King Kong, the Empire State Building was the tallest in the world. So I could I could I could see a case for updating it in that regard. And I like, you know, another new wrinkle in the story is the like, as you talked about, the Petrox Corporation, which was inspired by like actual oil drilling in various parts of the world in the 70s. Of course, that was a big sort of controversy in the Middle East at the time. So I think that was kind of an attempt to reflect what was going on politically in the world also. And I kind of admire that update as well. I do, too, actually. I was like, oh, I like this. There's a because how many movies do you get that incorporate the 1970s oil crisis that we all know about? Yeah, <laughs> right. After doing a little bit of research beforehand. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it does, it, there's not like a lot of like political commentary here, but there is definitely the sense that like, you know, the Charles Grodin character is this dastardly villainous, like, uh, what's the word imperialist kind of, you know, like trying to sort of like exploit the world, which obviously he does with King Kong at the end, bringing him back to New York and whatnot. So, so yeah, I think there's like a, a shade of political commentary there. I do too. And I was being an ass before. Um, but I, I do think it, I do like the fact that it incorporates the 1970s oil crisis. Yeah. It's weird though, because then like, you know, Dewan sort of just like washes up in a lifeboat or like a raft or whatever. And she was like making a movie, but she just like, is it ever really explained? Like she just like, is there like a shipwreck or something? And she just like happens upon this like oil boat. It's, yes. It's weird. Yeah. That's all that. Ha- that's all they explain about that so there is still the sort of like maverick filmmaking thing but it's never totally like believable in this case no i don't mind that so much it's just the dwan character in general which i'll get to yeah so matt as you mentioned earlier there are no dinosaurs in this movie another departure from marion c cooper and ernest showed stack's original film de Laurentiis didn't want to deal with stop motion which as we know from our episode on King Kong, is very time-consuming and very expensive. I mean, compared to the, uh, you know, the suitmation and, like, the little bit of, like, a, um, what's the word, like, a mechanical King Kong in this movie, stop motion probably would have looked better for the most part. I mean, the, 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 the Kong suit work, I think, is really good, but that mechanical snake that they pull out... Um, yeah, that that could have been bettered by just about anything. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So it's kind of too bad because this was like a big production that pulled out some of the stops, but not all the stops, because, you know, if they had spent more time and money and effort on the, on the stop motion, that could have been pretty, pretty amazing looking. But also, I feel like stop motion, I'm making a case against it now. I feel like the way this movie is is shot, the way it takes itself I feel like stop motion wouldn't fit with the tone of this movie. Yeah, I could I could see that. I think you're right. Yeah, but that's that's kind of to the detriment of the movie a little bit. But I think you're right for sure. <laughs> right. That's yeah, that's like a weird catch 22 with this film um, that I'm I'm conflicted with this movie. I really am because <laughs> I, f- I think it conflicts with itself, like you said earlier. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. So like we talked about earlier, Jessica Lange was an unknown actor when she was cast in the film. She was a model, I think, at the time. But this was her first big leading role. Uh, Jeff Bridges was a popular leading man, kind of becoming a star around this time. 
and maybe also becoming stars or just about to were the special effects designers Carlo Rambaldi and Rick Baker. Rambaldi would go on to do the special effects for E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Alien, which I think was the same year as King Kong. Uh, am I right about that? Uh, it could have been a year later, two years okay. later. Around the same time, though. Yo, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was definitely becoming like the go-to special effects guy around this time. Uh, Rick Baker, of course, would go on to do An American Werewolf in London, uh, the Howling, I think he did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, some other werewolf, non-werewolf movies that are not coming to mind right now. Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites. Men in Black. Yep, yep. Did he do Death Becomes Her as well, or am I? That was a lot of CGI, I guess. Maybe not. Maybe I don't remember confidently enough. But yeah, Academy multiple Academy Award winner. His makeup effects are iconic. Yes. So, yeah, you have two special effects um, whizzes, geniuses working together on this movie. And did you know Rick Baker plays Kong in the suit? I did read that. Yeah, it's cool. Sort of like um, Subaraya, right? Although he never really got inside the suits. But no, yeah. no. I take it back then. <laughs> <laughs> Not like that at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So Rambaldi designed a 40 foot, six and a half ton mechanical Kong that did not pan out. I think it's seen very briefly, like, I don't know, less than 30 seconds in this movie. But most of it is the just the Kong suit that we see. This is the most bonkers stat of this movie that this giant robot gorilla was built. And of course it didn't work. You see it for the briefest of of moments in the finished film. And it looks like like a 40-foot statue. It doesn't look like the animatronic suit work that is featured mostly in the film. It definitely doesn't look like an animal that like moves and sort of behaves like an animal would. It's yeah, it's a it's a hunk of metal, basically. So that's unfortunate. I, I think there are like various like animatronic faces that we do see in the movie, like more miniature versions of like what the robot might have been like. Robot's not the right word for it, the mechanical version. And there was like a mechanical arm and hand, like a full scale version that was uh, created for the film that's featured a little bit more prominently. But yeah, the full version is barely glimpsed. They should have cut it completely. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I feel like we have to talk about Jaws on like every single episode of Camp Kaiju, but it's kind of like that, right? Like the animatronic shark, like didn't work at all. And that's why Spielberg had to like shoot around it and use like implication and suggestion and stuff like that. You know, King Kong does not use implication or suggestion, but like just in terms of like the malfunctioning special effects, they have that in common. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the Jaws reference, though. Every episode we have to. (laughs) Okay, you heard it, folks. Um, The film King Kong was released and we're going to get to Jaws actually here. The film King Kong was released in December of 1976. It was being like they were using the production team was using jaws as the the benchmark for this kind of blockbuster and it did not meet the box office numbers of jaws uh, although it was a success in its own right um it opened number 1 its weekend and finished the third highest grossing film um worldwide for 1976 nbc did pay for the television rights and aired it in 1978. And I gotta 
listeners fact check us on this. I read that 45 more minutes were added to the television version of this film. I read that too, but I don't know what they possibly could have added. Yeah. How could this movie possibly squeeze out anything else? Like, it already seems pretty overstuffed as it is. Like, they cover all the bases. I don't know what else. 45 minutes. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, if anybody out there knows, please, uh, yeah, uh, let us know what it is. Yeah. Um, Initial, and I think even today, reviews are mixed to positive. Uh, lots of people praise the like Jeff Bridges' performance, Charles Grodin's performance, um, and the special effects. Again, that suitmation I think is pretty impressive. Although reviews are way, way less forgiving on just sort of like the it failing to not just live up to the thirty-three King Kong, but to like failing to capture the same sense of spirit and imagination. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll talk about it more later, but it's like, um, I don't like aside from money, I just don't really know exactly why they made this movie. Like you can tell if like the original movie, like, yeah, like they had this vision, this like amazing adventure fantasy story they wanted to tell. And with the Peter Jackson remake, like he had his own interpretation of the story and he really wanted to sort of, you know, take more time on. Is the character's name Anne? It is, right? In that version? Yeah. Um, Like, you know, her background as an actress and then like her relationship with Kong. So you know why he wanted to make that movie too. With this, it's like, so you just wanted to remake it. Like why? I don't know. And I think you see that in the special effects too. It's like, they just kind of were like, oh, what can we do to like recreate the look of the original? Like they don't really seem to have like an original and... um inspired take on it you know Mm -hmm. oil crisis though am i right that is like one of my favorite aspects of the remake but it's not much it's like a very small (laughs) part of the movie yeah (laughs) the film was nominated for some oscars though and did win best sorry did win best visual effects for carlo rombaldi glenn robinson and frank van devere cinematography richard klein cinematography was nominated along with best sound all right well let's get to our sponsor break and then we could talk about the themes and uh, i can read some comments in Minya's mailbox camp kaiju is sponsored by zach linder and the zach pack powered by coldwell banker realty your source for real estate home rehab fixing and flipping for investor clients and residential buyers Reach out to the Zach Pack today for real estate services. Follow the Zach Pack on social media and contact the Zach Pack for investment opportunities. Links in the bio. Okay, I'm pulling up our Instagram, one of many places you can drop us a line. And I posted a reel of a scene from Orca, the killer whale. And we had we had a lot of love for that reel. So uh, we had Richard Rock seventy one. He commented, "Awesome classic, still watch it today." We have another one. Well, I love all the Orca stuff that that you posted. It looks great. There are so many like strange and like over the top images and like moments from that movie. It's yeah, it's really fun to see that. Yeah, we had some commenters talk about how they watched orca um on some late night killer animal monster animal marathons in the 90s Ooh. and 
I was like, that's awesome. Like, do you have any other suggestions? And they, they threw out tentacles, another Dino De Laurentiis production. So uh, whoever you are, whoever commented on that, thank you. Um, reach out to us again and I'll give you a due credit if you want, but we'll, uh, we definitely have tentacles on our radar. <laughs> <laughs> on our sonar i should yeah, say we have tentacles on our sonar let's get out of here <laughs> it's a dumb joke <laughs> heard this ship around <laughs> yeah this is gonna turn into an old-fashioned radio show <laughs> we should do that sometime that'd be great it'd be a lot of fun yeah I'm... <laughs> <laughs> um thank you all for writing in we appreciate hearing your love for monster movies Matt, do you have any themes for this movie? King Kong, 1976, directed by Guillermo. <laughs> Guillermo's one and only King Kong. Well, actually, not his one and only. No. Only <laughs> so never mind. Um, let's. I mean, you know, we talked briefly about like the political commentary with like the oil company going in and exploiting this foreign land. Aside from that, like, I think most of the themes are kind of repeats from the original, you know, like we have the clash between modernity and like um, the indigenous community on the island on Skull Island, which is just about as offensive here as it is in the original King Kong, maybe even more so because they don't really make an attempt to like address that or update it at all. Um, But, you know, like, I guess what I'm getting at is that like, it's kind of asking you know like what's the real like what what is the value of civilization if like somebody like fred can go in and be so sort of callous and like exploitative like what does civilization mean that kind of question you know Mm -hmm. uh it's repeated here a little bit um i think you know like what separates humanity from the animal kingdom if anything like kong is probably more sympathetic and more human than most of the human characters in this movie and I'd say Kong here is more human-like than in the 33 version. Yeah. I feel like there's there's more effort to, I don't know, make, make Kong and, in this case, Dwan's relationship a bit more human, a bit um, kinder, more relatable. Yeah, and I do like that update. You know, like and Peter Jackson again goes even further with that, and like Naomi Watts gives a really, really very good performance in in that version of it. But yeah, I, I think it's very well done here as well. And I think like the expressions that we see on Kong's face, yeah, certainly they're more human. There's like more of an element of humor, of vulnerability, of love. So yeah, that part of it is well done. I think. Yeah, yeah, but I agree with you. I mean, the themes. Other than the oil crisis, there <laughs> isn't much added to what we've already covered in the 1933 version, which I think I think um, hampers the film. I think it hampers the film's staying power yeah. um, until that next oil crisis hits. Then we'll all be like, Guillermo's Kong was was the <laughs> bell ringer for. For our modern times. <laughs> it foresaw the future. <laughs> it's only but a matter of time. I do think I do think that the the sort of the rape of the natural environment of the land, I'm using that word as you know, metaphor, um, is is more so in this movie. Um, the natives on Skull Island completely disappear 
like mm. they're almost obligatory but then after like their dance and everything they're gone yeah and all the the oil people they just make themselves right at home they set up camp on the beach the the charles groden's just sipping pina coladas or whatever there's heavy machinery that's moved in it focuses on that aspect a bit more yeah yeah for sure yeah but it doesn't it doesn't like go into too much detail about like like it's kind of just like uh what's what am i trying to say i'm sorry like the the oil company is like clearly the bad guy and there's like not really any like complexity or like detail to it like it's not like it really goes into too much depth beyond that you know Mm -hmm. which is too bad and then like the jeff bridges character he's like a uh primate paleontologist i think and he he is introduced into the story because he just like climbs aboard the ship before it disembarks, um, which is kind of like unbelievable. But anyway, like, you know, I was kind of hoping that maybe there would be more of a theme of like uh, evolution and, and kind of like I referred to, like the difference between like man and animals. But the movie doesn't really go into that all that much. It's kind of just there, but it's not really like elaborated on, you know, and right. I would say that's true of most of the themes in this movie. And I would say, well, it's just a King Kong movie, but it's it's not the King Kong movie. So it tries to eat it, have its cake and eat it, too. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, ah, again, conflicted with with the what this movie wants to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How about form and aesthetic? Um, I you know, I'm not a like, ah, <laughs> yeah, conflicted is right. I think like the cinematography is good in some ways. It's very bright and colorful. It's well lit. Um, although if it's calling a movie well lit is maybe like the lamest compliment <laughs> you can possibly give it. But uh, I think like we're, one of the ways that this movie really fails is in its composite photography where like, you know, there's like a, some special effects in the foreground and then maybe there's like a middle ground that's like a matte painting and then there's a background that's maybe a different matte painting or like uh you know like it's a combination of like various planes of action that's all kind of smushed together and i actually think that it looks better in the original 1933 king kong than it does here and i think a big part of the reason why is that the original was black and white and here this is in color and you can very clearly see like the kind of like fuzzy edges of like what was like shot in a studio and what's like a matte painting behind it and stuff like that but in any case it's never very convincing and i think sometimes it looks really horrible like the scene where Kong carries Dwan to the waterfall after she falls in a mud pit. And then like, he kind of like blows on her to dry her off. It's sort of a sweet moment, but I don't think it looks very good. And like the combination of different um, footage that was shot at different times or, or at least created in different ways is never very convincing in this movie. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Those moments do stick out like sore thumbs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, See, the first time I watched this movie two years ago, I I was very unforgiving. I didn't like really anything about it um, except the oil crisis. But this time I and it's so funny because it's like after watching Orca, which is so uh, I think there's a lot of similarities between the way Orca is shot and King Kong, actually, um, at least with like terms of like ships at sea and sunsets. And I was like, oh, and. I get where De Laurentiis is coming from now. So yeah, in a weird way, Orca upped my appreciation for King Kong. Mm, cool. But um, in terms of like cinematography or lighting, I like, I really like um, the use of like, there's a lot of night scenes 
where the the black is really pitch black mm-hmm. and there's a lot of use of smoke and like there's this scene where they capture kong with the chloroform and kong's hand rises out of the chloroform it's all very ghostly and and atmospheric so i think there's like a lot of great use of truly of lighting yeah, I, I agree. That scene where they capture Kong is probably my favorite scene in the movie, and it looks really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think in general, I like the first half of this movie more than the second half. Yeah, I think the, like the scene where, um, you know, Duan is tied up and is kind of being offered to Kong. And then she like looks up and sees this huge beast. Um, like it doesn't have the same kind of like magic that the original did, but it looks really good. And um, it's a convincing sort of like, fantasy environment you know and then i think it gets less convincing after that point i agree with you i think i wrote this in my notes that when they leave skull island it became less interesting it became Mm -hmm. i don't know like okay can we just like wrap this up i feel like we're just treading water at this point like when uh duan and um jack go into a bar just to like why why just to have a drink and like be cute together we're just padding the runtime like why is this here (laughs) yeah yeah totally and then like they end up in the train that kong you know um demolishes basically whereas in the original king kong like there there's a similar scene but like the heroes are not on that train and i think like bringing them onto that train in sort of like a laborious or belabored way like you were talking about yeah we don't really need that like we kind of just like need the destruction it doesn't necessarily need to be those two characters that are in danger right Actually, to defend this, what to maybe I, I love that train sequence. I think that that's a great action set piece with great effects. Um, but again, we know how this movie's going to end. Let's just get to it. Um, what do you think about the bloodbath that was Kong's demise in this movie? It's effective, you know, in kind of like a cheap way. Like I think you know like shooting a helpless animal and like having all these blood all this blood splatter is like a pretty cheap way to like engender sympathy for the kong character but it does work in like a very crass kind of way you know yeah i agree i don't know if i love it or even like it but it's so 70s to me like let's get blood on the screen and 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 just like it's like very bonnie and clyde we're just gonna riddle riddle our character with bullets in a very like 70s way (laughs) yeah it's certainly and i i don't know it's probably unfair to compare it to the original which is such a great movie but like you know i mean we're affected by just who kong is in the original movie like his plight the fact that he's powerless in this like gleaming metropolis of new york city like that's what makes the original work and here it's kind of just like you know squibs like blood effects it's like not the same kind of effect you know oh my god this is in my bad category or we could just get there and I'll, and I'll try to remember it. So I'm ready to move on if you are. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say, like, I do think, like, the beginning looks really good. Like, the scenes of, like, the ship leaving port and, like, uh, yeah, all the, like, non-special effects stuff looks pretty good in this movie. I agree. Yeah. So the good. Um, It is fun to see Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange in early roles. I don't think their characters are especially deep, but they have a lot of charisma. I think they have good chemistry together. You know, it's just a good story. It doesn't really add that much from the original version, but there are still scenes that are very powerful. Like the scene where like the, um, 
the men are like trying to like cross the tree that's like straddling like a, a valley or whatever and like kong is like trying to shake them off it's still a very exciting scene so you know i mean i wish it like kind of took a more radical approach to to what the original king kong did so well but it at least recreates it pretty faithfully and pretty effectively a lot of the time right yep yep i like the i like that they kept that scene um i liked that i i really appreciated the charles grodin character this time around i i i met him on his own terms as a campy you know mustache twirling villain i was like (laughs) okay i understand where you're going now yeah perfect Yeah, I was going to I was going to save him for my campy category, but that's I I mean, his he's so over the top with like his, you know, like his pith helmet and like his sort of like safari gear or whatever. It really seems like a very like over the top flamboyant parody of like somebody who thinks that he's an explorer. And Mm -hmm. it's very, very funny. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've covered a lot of what I loved already. I love the suitmation, actually. Um, and I love some of the, some of the use of set, like you could like, uh, this was shot on, uh, not only on location, but also in a studio. And I like the way that those sets are constructed with the mountains and the, the black, the black drop, the psych or whatever behind them. Yeah. I think there's some effective staging in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we did already bring up the moment where they capture Kong, but like the, um, the big kind of wall set in that scene. Um, it's great in the original too, but like here it's, it's really well done. It looks fantastic. The I don't, I don't hate the world trade center ending. I it's, you know, I, there's the, the fun moment where like Kong leaps from one tower to the other. And like that, that moment itself, I was like, okay, I'm glad that you like changed the setting at the end. Too. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't hate it either. So I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Should I talk about the bad stuff? Oh, yes, please. Oh, sorry. I didn't. Did you have more good stuff that you wanted to bring up? I had no other good things to say about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> in the same boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like the suitmation itself isn't bad, but I, like I mentioned before, I think like the composite photography looks pretty sloppy. Um, I think special effects in general were at like a weird in between in the 70s where like, before that, you had like good Ray Harryhausen like stop motion animation, and then after that, like starting in the '90s, you had some good CGI, some terrible CGI, but also some good stuff. Uh, so here it's just like, eh, what do we do with special effects? Like I know Rambaldi and Baker are like, you know, very good and very innovative, but it just like in comparison doesn't look all that great here. Yeah, a move to mechanical uh, machines and devices. Which they did better than anybody, but eh, sometimes you can miss, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I I think for me, the thing that I dislike the most about this movie, and I kind of mentioned this before, but I just don't know why they made it except for like the desire to make money. Like they didn't add anything significantly to the story except for the oil crisis. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, aside from that, like, you know, like they did deepen the relationship between Juan and Kong a little bit. But like, yeah, this to me seems like a pretty blatant cash grab. And, you know, that's always a very unfortunate motivation to make a movie. I'm not on board with uh, like, yes, Kong and Duan's relationship is deeper, but it's still it's a, I would argue it's even creepier and perverted than ever before. <laughs> um 
Rick Baker's eyes behind that mask, like when they light up, I'm like, okay, chill, dude. You're <laughs> you're 40 feet tall, okay? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to imagine anything more about what's going to happen here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like that, the waterfall scene, I just feel like they're, the, the team is pushing the boundaries of like, how intimate are these characters going to get? Mm-hmm. And I guess depending on your taste, you're either like, oh, it's fine. It's a cute love story. Or you're like, this is kind of weird. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, I, you know, so many perhaps un- unfair comparisons here. But like the Peter Jackson version, their relationship is like is loving and like pretty like platonic, you know, like they're, mm-hmm. they become quick friends or whatever. Kong and Andu. But here, yeah, like I think maybe because Jessica Lange is so sexualized, it's it does take on a more perverse element in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Also, just Skull Island. I know this movie, the take on this movie is more of like a drama, romance film, what have you. I'm just really missing the da- the sense of danger on Skull Island. Um, the snake doesn't cut it for me. King Kong is is fine, but I think King Kong is also defined by his other animal uh rivals you yeah. know if it's a t-rex or what but that snake if that's the best you got it's kind of kind of lame <laughs> skull island <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed yeah and it seems like the skull island scenes in general in this movie are like less than or about equal to like the lead up and like what happens afterwards back in new york city Whereas in the original, like, you know, like we're there for like what's on the island. That's the most exciting part of the movie. So, yeah, it's it's unfortunate that this movie doesn't really offer us that. Yeah, that's that's where I'll leave my bad stuff. How about campy stuff? The one and only Charles Grodin. Seagrode, <laughs> like all. Uh, yeah, he's I, I love him in this movie. He's I, I feel like he he knows what he wants to do with this movie. Mm-hmm. He's trying to make like a campy over the top funny um yeah performance uh parody like i said before and like i feel like if other people were like trying to do the same thing that he was doing maybe i would like this a lot more but yeah he's he's great you know the jeff bridges character is kind of campy in a way just because he's like running around shirtless and he's like clearly supposed to be sort of like the sexy ape man himself a little bit so i guess that's kind of funny and campy but not in the same way that charles groden is um, how about when Dwan referenced Deep Throat in this movie? <laughs> yeah, that's a little too on the nose, I think. Maybe that's a bad expression to use there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is not good. Don't do this. It immediately dates your film. Yeah. Even then, right? Like, we get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there are some other references like that, too, that are not really coming to mind right now, but some like very 70s things that just like are dated immediately. When King Kong is on the top of the World Trade Center and the helicopters are flying around him, uh, I'm going to say green screen is used. Um, and it, it is just like a wild whirlwind of helicopters swirling around Kong. But like. The helicopters are at times as big as Kong himself. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no no respect for ratio with the use of green screen in that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of what I mean by like the sloppy composite cinematography. Like they they never really do a very good job of like matching 
perspective or size or anything like that. So it's yeah, it's it's a little sloppy. (laughs) And sometimes that can look kind of just like cool and weird and surreal. And I don't mind it sometimes. But here it's like you're like, this is a huge Hollywood production. You're supposed to like put more care into this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else, I think we can get down to our breakdown, our final rating. So as usual, our ratings on Camp Kaiju are number one. It's a timeless classic and definitely stands the test of time. Number two, there may be some antiquated moments, but overall it's great and stands the test of time. Number three, it may be historically significant or just fun, but it does not stand the test of time. And our lowest ranking, it is not worth revisiting and definitely does not stand the test of time. I'm interested. Where are you at with this movie? I'm going to give it our second lowest ranking. I think it is fun at times. Uh, I think sometimes it looks good, but yeah, it does not stand the test of time. I, you know, like I absolutely will return to the original King Kong. I've done so already numerous times and I I could see myself rewatching the Peter Jackson one as well. But here it's like you see it once and you kind of know what it is. I don't feel the need to revisit it again. Actually, I agree. I think there are some fun moments. I don't think it's particularly I don't think it's historically significant. I think it's just a a remake of a classic movie that for better, for worse pales in comparison to the original. Mm -hmm. And once you've seen it, it's for me, it was, it was hard to, to get back into it, but I know this movie is loved by a lot of people. um, And I can see why I think just for me here now, after seeing so many other versions of Kong, this one kind of falls to the bottom of the pile. I agree. Uh, You know, for people that love other versions of King Kong, I think they should see this just to like be a completist and like compare it and all that. But but yeah, it's the worst one that I've seen until King Kong lives. Yeah. Well, who who knows? Maybe that'll be better. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) Only one way to find out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I forgot one of my favorite campy things, which is just the name Duan itself. I think it's hilarious that like it's not Anne and it's not Dawn. It's Duan. I love that. I just wanted I wanted to make sure that I said that at some point. Oh, Duan. <laughs> we hardly knew you. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was fun. I'm glad we got to talk about another King Kong. Yeah, me too. I mean, like you've said on a past episode, uh, now we'll have to watch the Kong Skull Island movies to be true completists. Yeah, I think you've already seen them. I have not there. There are maybe at least six other Kong films out there. Mm. The Son of Kong, Godzilla versus Kong, King Kong Lives, King Kong versus Godzilla, and the forthcoming Godzilla and Kong. So that's five. I forgot about all the kind of Toho crossovers. Yeah, I would love to see those too. Yeah. I'm sure they will make an appearance at some point on Camp Kaiju. Well, we got our work cut out for us. We do. We do indeed. There is no shortage of monster movies in our future. All right. Well, we'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you for hanging out. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend, leave a rating and review wherever you listen, and visit CampKaijuMovieReviews.com or Instagram for more monster movie content. We can't thank you enough. Camp Kaiju is recorded in Minneapolis, St. Paul with theme music by Terrence Jackson and Mini's Mailbox by Ben Cook Feltz. Camp Kaiju is sponsored by Zach Linder and the Zach Pack, powered by Coldwell Banker Realty, your source for real estate, home rehab, fixing and flipping for investor clients and residential buyers. 
Reach out to the Zach Pack today for real estate services. Follow the Zach Pack on social media and contact the Zach Pack for investment opportunities. Links in the bio. Will you goddamn show me this pig ape? What are you waiting for? You want to eat me? Then go ahead! Do it! Be great friends.